Good evening, church. Once again, it's a joy to be found in the house of the Lord on a day that himself has made. And uh, it's good to see you turn up for our evening service. And I pray that the Lord will be able to bless us around his word as we spend this day in his presence. Turn with me uh, to the book of uh, Genesis, Genesis and chapter 14, and I will basically read the whole chapter 14. Genesis 14 from verse 1, the Bible says, in the days of Amaraphel, king of Shina, Ariok, king of Elasa, Chedolaoma, king of Elam, and Tido, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeoboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keodolaoma, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keodolaoma and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephem in the Ashtoroth Kanaim, the Zuzim in Ham the Emim in Shave Kiriathetam, and the Horites in their hill country of Sur, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Meshfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazozan Tama. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with uh, Kedolaoma, king of Elam, Tido, king of Goem, Amlatheo, king of Shina, and Dario, king of Elasa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled from fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the ox of Mamar, the Omarite, brother of Esco and of Anna. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsman had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back all his kinsmen, Lord with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of uh, Chaudolaoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shave, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would 
I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I would take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Esco, and Mama take their share. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we again come before you this afternoon to continue to worship you because this is the day that you yourself has set apart, that one day out of seven shall be set apart for you as a holy Sabbath, a day of worship, a day of reflecting on your creation, on your goodness, on your mercies, particularly for us who have been recreated, that we might indeed bring back praise and adoration and thanks and gratitude for all that you have done. Thank you, our Father, for this wonderful opportunity and the privilege indeed that we can acknowledge that we are your creatures and we are supposed then to find a time, a day suitable for you to worship you and to spend it in your honor and in your worship. So help us then as we listen from your word that we will be blessed indeed by it. Oh Holy Spirit, again we ask that you might dwell among us and lead us and guide us into all truth for you alone are able to search the mind of God. And this is the word of God. Therefore, help us to internalize it and to make sense of it. For we plead and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have begun considering uh, the part for our spiritual father, Abraham. All those of us who are God's children, we know that we are Abram's children. And we looked last time at uh, how Abraham dealt so graciously with uh, his nephew Lot. And in there we are considering the folly of religion without the blessed life. We looked at uh, the folly of making a living while neglecting the eternal matters of life. And so many people uh, fall in that uh, category. Sometimes even believers begin to ignore uh, that uh, eternal and spiritual side of their life. The side of uh, the temporal and physical things of this life tend to take more of their time, their energy, and their resources. But we notice that uh, when you look at our father Abraham, our spiritual father Abraham, he was a man that was full of grace. And uh, in chapter 14, uh, verse, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 13 and verse 14 of our passage that we read last time, you notice that uh, he was a spiritual man who was filled with much grace. And the reason is that uh, the God of glory had appeared to Abraham. And so with that appearance of God to Abraham, we saw that uh, his faith in God quenched the fire of his selfishness and he became a man who was full of kindness and he had godly desires and ambitions. We saw that because of this uh, grace in his life, it loosed him from the focus of the sin, the living by sight. Those things became, you know, very narrow in, in his life. And so that grace set him at liberty for God and he therefore lived more by faith. And uh, with the spiritual eyes of faith, we saw how he was able to see things better and far than his nephew, Lot, who in many ways lived by sight. And this came about, as you remember, the, 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 the workers of uh, these two relatives had begun to quarrel over land because uh, 
you know, the, the, the pastoral uh, or the pasture for their animals had actually become little. Both of them had increased in, um, uh, in cattle and, 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 and the animals that they possessed. And that brought about some form of quarreling. But the grace that was in Abraham helped so much to settle matters and to actually maintain a health relationship between the uncle and the nephew. And among the things that uh, we noted in the life of uh, Abraham that uh, were really traits of grace, as we call them, the traits of grace that he displayed in his, in his character, we saw that he had a peaceful heart. He, he was a man who did not love quarreling. He, he, he wanted peace. And we saw that uh, uh, trait in Abraham. We also saw that uh, he, had, he, he, was, uh, or he had a generous heart. Uh, again, from how, you know, naturally somebody who is older is supposed to take, um, you know, the first choice. But not with Abraham. We saw how that he allowed the young man to actually go for it first. And again, that just showed how generous his heart was. But thirdly, we also observed that uh, he had heavenly wisdom. Um, the, 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 the things of this world did not blind you know, Abraham from seeing the fact that he was called of God, and therefore he knew God would take care of him. And wherever God would take him, he knew that his grace will be with him there. Now that's a spiritual man, that's a spiritual thinking, because he was overtaken by God and he knew God. His abilities and capabilities made him to understand that uh, as long as God is on your side, it shall be well with you. And so we then concluded that uh, whatever we do in this life, we should not neglect the spiritual side of our life. The Bible tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean, and, and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, we ought to acknowledge him and he will make our paths straight. That is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Now today, I want us to continue to consider uh, still uh, some of the traits or more traits of grace in the life of Abraham. And I want us to observe these in the three characters that have been brought before us who interacted with Abraham. And these characters that interacted with are Lot again, and uh, secondly, Melchizedek, and thirdly, the king of Sodom. We would love to see how this gracious man, this father of the faithful, how in each of these interactions with these people, the trait of grace, you know, shone so brightly in his life. Here in our passage, we begin by looking at Abraham's encounter with Lot. And this is at a time when he, he rescues him. The account that is given us here is one where for some time there is this king who has conquered a number of nations around him. And for 12 years, these conquered nations have been paying tribute to him. His name is Chedaloama. And so the lesser kings have been paying, and among those uh, kings of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they also paid tribute to this uh, uh, great king. But in the 13th year, they decided to rebel. They felt, no, it's been too long. We've just been giving this man our annual tributes and so on. No, we are going to stop. 
So they decided to stop sending tributes. And it is at this point that uh, this, you know, King uh, Kedolaoma, uh, King of Elam, you know, became very annoyed and organized himself, got some of those men and other nations who were supporting him and attacked these nations that had become rebellious. Now you remember that Lot had come to live near Sodom. So part of uh, uh, the area that he occupied, well, he was basically in Sodom itself, though in the outs- outskirts of it. So when this, uh, this king and his men came to conquer these nations, we are told in verse 12 that they took Lot and his goods as well. It was part of uh, the loot uh, that uh, they made. And uh, they took a lot of uh, uh, booty and, and captives and left. And then we are told somebody comes to Abraham and tells him, your nephew has actually been uh, taken with uh, everything that he has. Now, you remember in our discussion of the attitude of Lord to Abraham that uh, the natural tendency would have been, ah, but didn't I tell him? Eh? He thought he was clever. He should have listened to me. But look at what has happened to him. But that's not how Abraham, or Abraham at this time, as he was called, reacted. In verses 11 of our passage, going to 16, listen to um, how he reacts, verse, starting from verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the ox of Mama the Omorite, Brother of Esco and of Anna. These were allies of Abraham. Verse 14. When Abraham heard that his kinsman, other versions say his brother. When Abraham heard that his brother had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, both in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And... Uh, we are told how he went after them, verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his, uh, uh, his, his, his kinsman or brother Lord with his possessions and the women and the people. <clears throat> now the point I'm really trying to make there is that look at uh, the trait of grace in this man. A spiritual person as Abraham and just wonder and marvel at his attitude towards others. He acted in a magnanimous and generous spirit. His natural affection and family spirit working together with the grace of God that was in his heart, caused him, you know, to go for this young man's plight and fate. And so we see here that because the grace of God was reigning in his heart, he was able to forego the wrongs of uh, Lot and not to want him to be punished in that sense, but rather he went after him to rescue him. He didn't sit in his tent and say to himself, he left me for his own pleasure, and now he must take the consequences of his selfishness. No, rather he went after the young man. The Bible tells us, and when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, in verse 14, he led forth his trained men. So the remembrance of the relation that was between them 
which was both by nature and by grace, made Abraham forget the little quarrel that uh, they had previously. Um, Yes, even though Lot had um, acted uh, in a mean way to his uncle, Abraham did not take it to heart. And this raises the question or brings a challenge to us, how we ourselves react when our friends offend us. Abraham had a noble behavior. He was able to forgive hateful injuries. How much more should we who are Christians be? We who have seen Christ slain and who are named after the name of the Son of God, how much more should we act in a more forgiving way? I've heard some people say that they can more easily forgive their enemies than their friends. It's like, do you know that it hurts more when it's your friend who offends you? At least you know if it is an enemy that after all is already my enemy. But, but so the one who is close to you, the one who is near you, the one that you have spent time and you know, eaten from the same table and from the same plate, it's more painful. And some people say, look, it's easier for me to forgive an enemy than a friend. But what the Bible is teaching us is that uh, we should be ready to forgive both. If we consider especially that our God, when we were enemies ourselves to him, reconciled us. But also, when we remember that God passes by many of our transgressions, we should be able to forgive whether enemy or brother. Forgiveness should come naturally from us. Verses 15 and 16 tells us of the success of Abraham's rescue mission. He defeated his enemies and rescued his friends. And we do not find that he sustained any losses. It would appear that this plan that he had come up with and which he, he used to manage and uh, rescue his uh, nephew and the others worked very well. But obviously we ask, what could have been, you know, the reason for, for this? Well, we know that uh, Abraham was not a fighter by nature. It, it is not the kind that is thinking, let me conquer that land, let me conquer those people. He, he went out, you know, for a good cause. And he went out with a good heart. And because of that, we can be sure that he was under the special protection of a good God. This is someone who loves God and who saves God. And so as he went out on this expedition to rescue his nephew, he went in that venture with a good cause and a good heart. And it often is the case with God. He saves whether with many or with few. With God, it's one and the same thing. It doesn't really need to be an army of thousands for him to conquer. If you look at uh, the number of men that Abraham recruited, 318, and you compare this with uh, the army of uh, this king, Chaudalama, and not only his own army, remember he was a great king and had conquered many other nations, he also had those who were supporting him. So obviously he had a bigger, well-trained army, but these were simply servants in Abraham's uh, you know, home. They were not even trained men for war. But you know, they are working under a mighty one. And so God is able to save by many or by few because he is God. To him, nothing is too hard.
Now, what we see here in the example of Abraham is that we ought to be ready whenever it is in the power of our hands to help and relieve those that are in distress, especially our relations and friends. If it is within our power, brethren, it is a Christian spirit. It's a Christian thing to do to help them out. Proverbs 17 verse 17 says, A brother is born for adversity. And we also know that a friend in need is a friend indeed. And that's exactly what Abraham did here. I'm sure a lot may have been wondering whether Uncle Abraham would ever think about him after all that had happened. But he was a friend indeed because he rose to help his nephew at a point and time when he was in need. But it is interesting that in this account, we see Abraham rescuing not only Lot, but uh, the rest of the captives. And what is interesting is that the rest of these captives were not his relatives, they were all strangers. But then, even though he was not under any obligation to rescue them, these were Sodomites. These were sinners, exceedingly sinners, you know, in, in their lives. Um, and so Abraham could have easily just gone after his, his nephew only and ransomed him and then taken him back. But we are told that uh, as he went for the sake of rescuing Lot, he also brought back all the women and all the people and their goods in verse 16. It says there, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Again, brethren, as we have opportunity, we must do good to all men. Here we have another lesson of how our father Abraham, you know, lived or acted or interacted and an example of how that we should not just be people whose light is shining among ourselves as believers. That we should promote but our light must also go out to the people outside. And so as we have opportunity, we must do good to all men. Our charity must be extensive as opportunity offers itself. And wherever God gives life, we must not hold back the help we can give to support. God does good to the just and the unjust and so must we. We read that in Matthew 5 and verse 45. He's a God who does not cause rain to only fall on the righteous, but it falls on the unrighteous as well. We need to emulate that spirit. So that is how gracious um, Abraham um, was in interacting with uh, his nephew Lot. But secondly... Let's look at Abraham and Melchizedek in verses 18 to 20. Abraham and Melchizedek in verses 18 to 20. Now here, we are met with a, a very strange character. Um... We are told in verses 18 to 20, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Here we consider the spiritual significance of this uh, narrative of Melchizedek. 
we are told who he was, that he was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And in Hebrews chapter 7, we are given other glorious things that are said about him. Let's turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 7. And uh, it is always a good principle that uh, if the New Testament writers have interpreted an Old Testament passage, then their interpretation is the correct interpretation. And so here we have this Old Testament uh, passage of Melchizedek, which is now interpreted in the New Testament by the author of the book of Hebrews. And so whatever he says here about what we have read in the Old Testament is the correct interpretation. So who is this man according to the author of Hebrews chapter 7? Let's begin to read from verse 1. We go up to verse 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I'm sure you have read a lot of writings on Melchizedek, and many Christian writers have uh, thought that uh, this was an appearance of the Son of God Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, known to Abraham at this time by this name as Melchizedek, but afterwards also known by Hagar, who called him by another name that we read in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. There is a name that Hagar calls the God who appeared to her uh, there in, in chapter 16 of Genesis verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of sin. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So some writers think uh, this was the name that... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, before his incarnation, you know, appearing in the Old Testament, appeared in this mode or in this form uh, to these people. Uh, here he appeared to Abraham as Melchizedek. He appeared to Hagar as uh, you are the God who sees, the God who sees. Uh, because uh, she was uh, mindful of the fact that, okay, so though I've been suffering and crying, Yet there is a God who sees me. But then she says, now I have seen him who sees me. So he was basically referring uh, to the one who had appeared to her. So Melchizedek appeared to Abraham as a righteous king, owning a righteous cause, and giving peace. Now, I'm sure you agree with me that... Uh, 
it is difficult to imagine that any mere man should be said to be without father, without mother, and without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Which human being has ever been described in that form that Hebrews 7 and verse 3 you know, reviews to us? It is said of Melchizedek that he lives and that uh, he abides a priest forever. You know, like continually, we, without any, he continues to be a priest. And we know all the priests died. But this particular one, you know, you, you begin to, to wonder, is this a mere man? Now, the author of Hebrews makes him, of him, of whom these things are spoken to be, you know, our Lord uh, who sprang out of Judah. Now, it is equally difficult you know, to think that any mere man should at this time be greater than Abraham. And that's the point again that the author of Hebrews is trying to make us see. That certainly this Melchizedek is more than just a mere man. How would anyone at this point be greater than Abraham in the things of God? And that Christ should be a priest after the order of any mere man? And that any human priesthood should so far excel that of Aaron as far as uh, it is certain that uh, Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, you know, in this, in this sense seemed to have been even higher. So all this is speaking in a language that takes you, you know, further than just concentrating on uh, mere humans and, and the physical picture. In summary, then, we can say this Melchizedek was a symbol of the mystery connected with the Savior's person. He, he, he shadowed forth important truths in relation to Christ as our priest. His priesthood was distinguished for its uh, antiquity in terms of uh, it being from old, but also its Catholicity in terms of its universality, covering, you know, universally, but also its independence, where he has no beginning, there's no source mentioned, we can't trace his origin. Melchizedek, must have been the prefiguration of Christ as the king of his people. And the story seems to be a typical picture then of Christ exercising his ministry of blessing his people. So this is who this man was. But what did he do? Verse 18. In verse 18... Of Genesis 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He brought out bread and wine for what? For refreshment of Abraham and his soldiers, and also as a way of congratulating them for their victory. Now, he acted in this way as a king. Remember, we are being told he's a king of Salem. He is he's a king, and obviously here we are getting an idea that uh, to do good, to communicate, and to be given to hospitality, according to our ability, is a good thing for Christians to do. And here, we are being taught, you know, that uh, in this way that this king of Salem acted, is representing the spiritual provisions of strength and comfort, which Christ has laid up for us, in that covenant of grace for our refreshment, when we are wearied, when 
our spiritual lives, you know, are conflicted with troubles of this world, there is this king who refreshes. But apart from him acting as a king, we have also seen that uh, he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham, which we may suppose a greater refreshment to Abraham than even the wine and the bread that he, he gave to him. In this, in this way, then, God, having raised up his son Jesus, has sent him to bless us as one having authority. And those whom he blesses are blessed indeed. We know that our Savior Jesus Christ went to heaven uh, when he was blessing his disciples. For this is what he ever lives to do. He blessed them and then he left. But what is he still doing there? He has continued with the work of blessing his people. What did he say? Here we see what he did in verse 18. But what did he say? Two things, verses 19 and 20. He blessed Abraham from God. When he said, blessed be Abraham, blessed of the Most High God, in verse 19. Now, when you look at uh, the titles that are given here, they are very glorious titles describing who God is. The first thing we hear there is that he's Most High God. And this Most High God speaks of his absolute perfections in himself. And it speaks of his sovereign dominion over all creatures, that he is king of kings. And it is interesting that it is coming from a king himself. But in describing God, he says is God the most high. But he also says in the second place that he's possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, he's saying he is the rightful owner. He is the sovereign Lord of all creatures and all because he's the one who made them. And this speaks of him as a great God and greatly to be praised. And happy are those people who have an interest in this favor and in his love. Because this kind of, uh, you know, language shows someone who really has interest in his favor and in his love. So he blessed Abraham from God. But secondly, he blessed God, he blessed God for Abraham in verse 20. And blessed be the most high God. So not only did he bless Abraham, but he blessed God the most high. And from here we can have... Uh, a guide to prayers and praise. We can have a guide on our prayers and praise. In our prayers, we must praise God and join hallelujahs with all our hosannas. These are the spiritual sacrifices we must offer up daily and upon particular occasions. But God, as the most high God, must have the glory of our victories as well. It is sad that uh, we do acknowledge God and see his mercies, he's at work in our lives, he rescues us, he helps us in so many ways. But when we have those victories, we don't seem to get back to God and give him the glory for those victories. Now, what this man, Melchizedek, is actually teaching us is that God must have the glory of our victories. And it is a reminder that without God, 
we cannot have the victories we have. So every time when God blesses you, you need to give thanks, to give praise. You actually need to acknowledge that uh, I am who I am, I have what I have because God has made it possible. We ought to give thanks for others as well for, for the mercies that they receive, triumphing with those that triumph. So here is Abraham. He has come back from a victory. He has just won a victory and he, he comes and Melchizedek meets him and he blesses God for Abraham. He is thankful to God on behalf of the victories of Abraham. Again, as Christians, we need to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We need to encourage one another. When our brethren have something they are rejoicing in, we go in and rejoice with them. Even so, when they also have challenges, again, you know, we, 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 we mourn with them. It's a Christian thing to do, and let us therefore be the kind of people that are not only acknowledging the victories of God and inviting our fellow Christians to rejoice with us, but also that we who are brethren should uh, take uh, you know, a note of those blessings and join in to celebrate with our brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ... Our great high priest is the mediator both of our prayers and praises and not only offers up ours or our prayers, but is on for us. So this is what we see in the life of Melchizedek. But what was done to him in response? What did Abraham then do? Here we have just been talking about uh, what Melchizedek you know, did for Abraham. But what did Abraham do for him? We are told that Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils that uh, he had. And this he did first and foremost as a gratitude presented to Melchizedek. He was in a way retaining is token of appreciation and thanks. Those that receive kindness should show kindness. Gratitude is one of nature's laws. It is just a right thing to do, which we must cultivate, we must develop, and even help our children to grow into that when we receive kindness in return, we too should show kindness. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He gets a tenth of everything that uh, he had come uh, with as spoils, and he gives it to Melchizedek. But he also offers an offering which he had vowed and dedicated to the Most High God, and puts this in the hands of Melchizedek. When we have received mercy from the Lord, it is just fitting that we should express our thankfulness by some special act of pious charity. God must always have his dues out of our substance, especially when by any particular providence he has either preserved or increased it to us. When we don't do these things, brethren, we are being ungrateful. We are not practically acknowledging that uh, there is anything that God is doing in our lives and for us. And so we see that in offering this, um, you know, appreciation to Melchizedek, Abraham gives a tenth. 
that the tenth of our increase then is a very fit proportion to be set apart for the honor of God and the service of his sanctuary. It is a biblical concept. We are living at a time when we, in some churches this is a big issue why we must be giving a tenth to God. In fact, you hear people saying, no, this is an Old Testament practice. It was, you know, fulfilled when Christ came. Now we are living in the days of uh, liberty. We can only give as, as, as we, you know, feel moved. Now, when they are arguing like that, they are not arguing because they want to give more. The argument is because they want to give less than the tenth that was prescribed. Now, if you follow that argument properly, for those who argue that we should not be advocating for a tenth, it means then that if the tenth was the minimum giving of the people of the Old Testament, who did not have the privileges we are talking about here this morning as those of the Old Testament, it means that for us, it must be more than the tenth. That should be the minimum. So when you now argue like that, they then go, yeah, but. So the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, God is not a tyranny. He has given us, you know, something he knows all of us can and are able to do. A tenth of everything that uh, he blesses us with, the increase that he gives us is something that we should be doing cheerfully. But that is not the spirit. No, we are now living in days of uh, liberty, and that liberty goes to stealing from God. We withhold even the tenth. Out of the tenth, sometimes we are giving five, five percent or two percent or three percent, now, the minimum is a tenth. And even that, if you are a Christian, you are thinking, okay, I have now just given what the Lord has said I should give. So this is like a tax. The government demands it and I pay. It's not my money. Now we should be seeing Christians out of what has remained. That is where your generosity is now coming from. Your generosity is not only your 10%, your, your, your tenth. That is something that already belongs to God. It's not your money. Every time you don't pay a tithe, you steal from the Lord. So apart from stealing from the Lord, God also wants to see whether you are generous with what is now yours, what has remained. How much do you then say, thank you, Lord? From now what is mine, this again is what I give back. So this New Testament uh, argument about Titans, and we need to be careful that it doesn't lead us to become thieves so that we give less. But rather that in the New Testament, we are in fact supposed to give more because we have more privileges, more knowledge, and we are more, you know, um, able uh, than they were. That community, when you look at them, they were a pastoralist community. They kept animals, and they are like our people in the villages. And you don't expect those people to give more than now us, who earn more than they do. So those dynamics should actually come into play. And here we see our father Abraham, the father of the faithful, giving an example that he gave to one who was he considered greater than himself. And as we have seen, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should do that. We should even do more than that as the Lord blesses us. So in his dealings with Melchizedek, two traits in Abraham's character brought out. Firstly, we have seen Abraham has recognized in Melchizedek that he is the priest of the Most High God in verse 18. And because of that, he accepts refreshment for both his body as well as his spirit. That is, he has received the wine 
and the bread, and he has also received the blessings that uh, he has brought upon him. And so what we see then is his recognition of the communion of saints. There's something that uh, when he sees Melchizedek, he sees someone who is like himself. He descended in this royal priest, even though he was a stranger and was meeting him for the first time, he sees a faith and a piety so closely alike with his own. And th these two eminent people met on the basis of a common worship involving a common confession of monotheism, the worship of one true God. Abraham could see it that this one is just in the same category like me and is even greater. So there is an aspect of the recognition of communion of saints. But secondly, there is this profound humility as a man of faith. Up to this point, the man that is known to be working with God is only Abraham. But look at how he humbles himself. The Bible speaks of Abraham as one who had the promises in Hebrews 7 verse 6. The one who had the promises felt himself honored in being blessed by this Canaanite noble and in offering his tithes to God through him. He humbled himself, he didn't say, look, who, who are you, Mr. Melchizedek? I don't know you. I am the Abraham, the friend of God who is known. No, the man was full of humility. But lastly, let's see Abraham's uh, interaction with the king of Sodom. Verses 21 and 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Anna, Eskol, and Murma take their share. I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abraham rich. Now, notice a very marked contrast between how Abraham interacted with Melchizedek which we have just been talking about, if you look at the attitude, if you look at uh, the way, you know, he, he seemed to have, uh, you know, connected so well with Melchizedek, and you see now the, the patriarch's attitude towards the king of Sodom, you can see that there is a whole world of a difference here. He saw in the king of Sodom the chief representative of the wicked heathen. So while he maintained a dignified composure in the conversation with the king of Sodom, he totally refused to receive any benefit at his hand. And this demonstrates the believer's superiority to the world. This superiority to the world may be manifested in various ways, as in the case of Abraham, where we see, number one, Abraham refusing to insist upon lawful rights and privileges when it brings them into dangerous association with the world. When the king of Sodom is, is asking him, you know, he's the one who has won the battle. They had, remember, they had... They had been defeated, and they had taken all their possessions, their women, and everything. It was Abraham who went after them, and as they rescued these people now. And now, he comes and is trying to negotiate with Abraham. Obviously trying to make friends or bring him close. And it is here that Abraham says, I will not take anything that is yours. Because he is mindful that uh, he should not get into this dangerous association with an even. 
he recognizes this king of Sodom as an heathen king. And even though, yes, there is plenty of spoils that he has brought, his eye is not how rich I must become. Because in the first place, Abraham didn't go out to go and make himself rich. So he says, I will have nothing to do with that. He doesn't want to have anything to do that contains an element of sin in it. And so he refuses totally. But secondly, you see in Abraham this grace and spiritual element by refusing to acknowledge the world as the source of true greatness. When he says here that uh, you might, after I have gotten some of your things, say, we made Abraham rich. He's basically saying, my life is not made rich and prosperous and admirable by what the world offers me. My life is blessed of my God. I am the chosen of God, and as I stand even now, I am the heir of the promises of God. Remember, God had appeared to Abraham and had told him, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will give you children as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Can this man then be really desiring the things that uh, this king of Sodom would give him? No, he was mindful of where true greatness comes from and where it lies. But thirdly, it is showing that um, he stands on a different footing and has a better hope than the children of this world. When you read verses 22 and 23 here, these are very encouraging words. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. I would take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Esco, and Mama take their share. Abraham is very content and is loosely attached to the allurements of this world the world and its attractions. Abraham is not seeking his own gain. When he went out to rescue Lot, no. And he will accept nothing for having done his duty. For him, he simply did his duty. The Lord whom he serves has made him heir of the whole land and he cannot receive any portion of inheritance from man. Lest, especially from somebody who is representing a sinful Sodom. But how we rejoice in joining people who are engaged in sin and evil. How we earn our properties and our, 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 um, our livelihood through cheating and entering into leagues with friends who are non-believers and all in the name of we work with them. That's what everyone is doing. Our father Abraham is saying, no, opportunity was there for him to enrich himself. He could easily have said, yes, just get the people and I'll get all the animals. But no, he could see that uh, he stands on a different footing. And he has better hopes than the children of this world. Brethren, that should be the spirit with which we must move on. Look at Lot. Lot thought he was very clever. He gets the share and goes and lives among these pagans. It's not long that uh, when now he felt he had acquired and he was happy, his is conquered, is captured, and everything he had is taken away from him. And that would happen if your security is in acquiring the things of this world in a dubious way. For a while, you'll appear very clever, but it is not the kind of property and resource that your children and great-grandchildren will benefit from. 
somewhere along the way, the things that you don't acquire properly will be taken away from you. But that which has been given you by God, he will protect it and he will preserve it for you from a generation to generation. Therefore, know where your footing is as a Christian and where your hopes are. Do not be like the children of this world. We are a different crop of people and we need to show that light shining wherever we are placed. Let the world see God in us and Christ in us and praise him. Let them know that truly they are children of God in this world. They are people who are still our friends of God. Abraham, our father, was, and he has demonstrated it very clearly. Before his relative Lot, he has demonstrated it in the face of Melchizedek, who is a representative of Christ, and he has demonstrated it in a pagan king of the Sodomites. In all those three different areas, Abraham has shown the traits of grace. May we emulate this man after whom we have been called to be his children. Amen.